your, I got to tell you, every time your photo comes up, my aunt Anna had the same table and a plastic cover <laughs> over the couch. No surprise. And I'm thinking, Wait, is that, a, is that a room in Jackson Heights, Queens? <laughs> Because oh, if it is, I was there. <laughs> it could be the room in any, anywhere in Italian America. I love it. Not only my grandmother had a plastic cover also on the marble table. But that was another story for another day. That's hardcore. I yeah, love it. That was hardcore. It was so well done, you just thought it was a shiny marble table. See that you're born an Italian. If you want your life to be great, see that you're born in Italiano and your life will be great. From the moment you're a small bambino, you eat pizza, you drink vino, then they make you roly poly, you get stuffed with ravioli. Your mama's a paisano You will have the world on a plate So see that you're born in Italiano And your life will be great Hey there, Paisani. Welcome back to another episode of the Italian American Podcast. I'm John Viola, here today with my partner in crime, the notorious P.O.B., Pat O'Boyle, and our beloved associate producer, Ms. Stephanie Longo, stepping across into a co-hosting role today because we've got a topic that she is incredibly passionate about that we're going to speak on uh, with some amazing experts that we've been talking to for a while off mic here and thoroughly enjoying. So, Stephanie, why don't you intro this episode that you really helped to bring to fruition and put together because uh, we've got an anniversary coming up about 10 days after this episode airs that we want to recognize and want to focus on. And, and you've been integral in this. So why don't you intro our guests and what we're doing? Sure. So the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire to me is something that every Italian American and especially every Italian American woman needs to know about because it's so integral to immigration history in the United States, as well as the history of labor relations in the United States. I first found out about it actually when I was on the NIAF Gift of Discovery in 2002. So our group went to Sardinia and the first time that I ever heard of the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire was when we were in the town of Orgoso which is known for its beautiful street murals. And there was a mural of the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. And I'm looking and I realized this happened in New York. How come I don't know about this? And when I got back to the United States, I started researching it. I was a history minor in college and I just wanted to know about it. And my heart broke for these poor women. And just getting to know people throughout the Italian-American community, I've come to know Eviz Junta and Marianne Trashati, and they are the national experts on this tragic event. And what they're doing is, I, I can't even find the right word to describe it because it's so moving and so beautiful. Just the commemorations that they're a part of in New York City and how they're working so hard to bring this tragic event to the consciousness of the American people and the Italian American community, because what happened should never have happened. And what they're doing is making sure that it never happens again. And we're looking at uh, March 25th, the 110th anniversary of this fire that occurred here in, in New York in 1911. So I think it's an appropriate time also combined, like you say, with uh, 
International Women's Month here and uh, the celebration last week of International Women's Day, these sort of combination of issues around gender, labor, immigration, uh, safety, city life, urban planning, so much to unpack in this amazing chapter that I do agree with you, far too few Italian Americans and far too few Americans in general really know about. So it's a real pleasure for us to welcome Marianne and Edvija to the show. Uh, ladies, thank you for coming on and, and for all you do. And uh, we're really excited to have you here today. Thanks for having us. It's great to be here. Thank you for having us. You guys are, as Stephanie points out, not only academic authorities on this incredible chapter in Italian American and, and New York City and American history, but also really leading the charge for its memorialization for recognition. Um, just a brief introduction, Marianne is a professor at Hofstra University, and she's also the president of the Remember the Triangle Fire Coalition, and has since 2010 helped to organize and also been a featured speaker at the annual official Triangle Fire commemoration here in New York. Edvige is at New Jersey City University, teaching literature and creative writing, and has actually created a course on the history of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire. And both of these ladies have been integral in the development of an official memorial at the site 110 years in the making, which uh, I believe we'll talk about a little bit further on, is approaching its official unveiling next year. And they've also been working tirelessly on a new book that will come out next year called Talking to the Girls, Intimate and Political Essays on the Triangle Fire, a wonderful anthology they're working on together. So this is obviously a passion for both of you. Would one of you like to give us a sort of overview of the event before we kind of dig into the details? I just want to, just because I, uh, I don't want to take credit for things I have not done. And really the one who deserves all the credit for the Triangle Fire Memorial is my friend Marianne Trasciatti. Uh, we come together doing work that all revolves around the Triangle Fire, but she's really, she's really has done the work. I get to benefit from a lot of the work she's done around the creation of the Triangle Fire Memorial. And we could talk more about that. Well, that's wonderful to recognize the hard work and uh, I'm with you. Never take credit for something you haven't done the work on. So I totally understand, particularly, you know, working with Pat and Stephanie and Rosella, Dolores, Anthony, all of us, have different pieces of the puzzle that we do. So you want to make sure the credit goes to the right place. So Marianne, why don't you tell us a little bit about the overview of this, you know, really horrific chapter and set the table for us to dig into some of the details. Yeah, well, thanks again for having us here and for um, taking an interest in this really important chapter in the history of the city, the country, the world, and the Italian-American community. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've given a talk about Triangle and had people come up to me afterward and say, I didn't know that there were Italians who worked in the factory. Uh, so it's really great that we are claiming this history because um, it is ours as well as others, but we've not recognized it as our own. And it's, it's a tragic story. Many labor stories are bummers, essentially, you know, strikes lost, workers um, exploited. And this is a, a really tragic story, but it's also a story that has uh, an inspirational epilogue. Um, so March 25th, 1911, just before closing, uh, was uh, a Saturday, a spring day, a fire broke out on the eighth floor of the Triangle Factory, which was located on the eighth, ninth, and 10th floors of a building called the Ash Building, which is just east of Washington Square Park. Um, it was next to an NYU law building. It is, it is now an NYU building. Um, it's a science building called the Brown Building. It was donated to the university. 
about a decade after the fire. And the fire started on the eighth floor, probably an ash from a cutter's cigarette fell into a bin of fabric and conditions were just, it was, you know, the, the, the fire equivalent of a perfect storm. So the building had inadequate fire safety measures. Um, there were too many people, too much machinery, too little space in there. The air itself was filled with cloth fibers. So when the when the ash fell in the cutter's bin, um, it's our understanding from testimony of survivors that the workers were not permitted to go outside for breaks. So if you did need to relax and have a cigarette, which was, you know, we don't think of it that way, many of us anymore, but that was a way that people relaxed and kind of, you know, it took their, took their five minutes, um, you know, to do it inside and it fell into a bin and just ignited, uh, the whole place. Um, the call went up to the 10th floor to the switchboard operator. And in the panic that ensued, she did not notify the ninth floor. So we had workers on the eighth floor scrambling to get out workers on the 10th floor, going up to the roof and being ferried across a ladder to safety by NYU law students in the building next door, workers on the ninth floor, um, not so lucky. Uh, they didn't get the call until it was too late. Uh, by the time they found out about the fire, you know, for many of them, their fate was sealed. There was great panic. Uh, workers tried to escape through the doors uh, on the Washington Place side uh, and the Green and the Green Street side. Um, they found one set of doors locked. There was another set of doors that had all kinds of stuff in front of it, so it was difficult uh, to get to them. And and e even the doors that would open, uh, opened inward. This was not part of the fire code to have outward facing doors. So you can imagine there were as many as 500 workers, how many were on the ninth floor, I don't know, but you can imagine people just rushing to get out and then finding out that the doors open inward. So you have to have the presence of mind to take a step back into what you're fleeing, basically, to open the door. So it was it was really awful. Workers um, attempted uh, to go down the fire escape, but it was rickety because of inadequate uh, safety regulations. Um, it was considered a third exit and it was completely uh, inappropriate. It fell apart. And actually, there was at least one worker who was impaled uh, and died that way. A bunch of workers managed to get out on the elevator and the elevator operator was a young, uh, a young man, Italian immigrant, Joseph Zito. And this is a real hero, right? Here's a young man. He takes the elevator down. He could have left. No one would ever have found fault with him, but he didn't. He kept going up and down and up and down, ferrying as many workers as he could to safety. And then those workers who knew they were trapped in the building were so desperate, they tried anything to get out. They went to the windows, the fire ladders only reached up to the sixth floor. They could not get down the ladders because the fire company had come immediately when it heard um, the commotion and the firemen held out nets and the workers uh, jumped, uh, hoping that they would land in the nets. The force uh, of their jumping was too strong, too powerful for the nets and the nets just ripped apart and they smashed into the pavement in some instances, breaking through the vaults uh, into the sidewalk below. A crowd had gathered and horrified New Yorkers uh, from every class, every ethnic group that you can think of that would have been in that area in and around the park that day um, watched uh, horrified. There was really nothing they could do as 146 people either burned to death on the inside or died uh, jumping to their deaths in a desperate attempt to escape. It lasted about 15 minutes. Um, when it was over, the building was fireproof. Um, the outside showed almost no signs of damage, uh, but the inside, the, the factory was destroyed and every person who remained in it 
was burned to death. And the only living creature that was found uh, by the fire commissioner was a mouse, a drenched mouse. Um, and he, uh, he actually put it in his pocket and said, I, it was alive. I had to save it. Wow. I, I, I never in, in all of my years, and I'm not, I'm no expert on the topic, realized that this all occurred within 15 minutes. I'm shocked. Exact same thought came to my mind. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, the, 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 the scale of death, you know, 146 human lives gone. Uh, you don't think that that could even occur in 15 minutes, you know? I mean, that, that's just, it's unbelievable, really. You, you could, you, you picture something unfolding over time, um, like a bad drama, but 15 minutes is, you know, especially in the heartbeat of New York city, you could lose 15 minutes. Like it's nothing, you know, you, it, you could go on without you even mm-hmm. realizing that the time has passed. That's incredibly sad. Even that mural that I saw in Sardinia actually shows a woman being engulfed by the flames. And the way that the mural was presented is that you're actually walking down a street. And the first thing that you see is this woman being engulfed in flames and she's reaching out, begging for help almost. And that just stays with you. And then when you're learning about it, when you're reading the archival newspapers, when you're hearing about it from Marianne, everything just hits home. And it's just so emotional that you feel it in the pit of your stomach and it's tragic. There's no other way to describe it. When you think about how the youngest person to die in the fire was 14, think about how a 14-year-old would have felt. I mean, it's just horrible. It's it's beyond comprehension. What a 15 minutes it was, just awful. Is it a matter of that the factory was not up to code in terms of safety practices, or is it a matter of the code really hadn't developed yet? I mean, you know, I, I know this this goes on to change how we look at labor and safety, but was it negligence or was it uh, sort of novelty of, of the occurrence that, that leads to such a. The building was B. The answer is B. It was, it was um, the building was a state of the art building. It was fireproof. Uh, there were a lot of loopholes in the codes that existed. So as I mentioned, they were supposed to have three exits and they were able to petition to have the fire escape count as as an exit that the fire escape is supposed to be an extra exit fire drills were not mandated at the time so there were none hence the panic that ensued maximum occupancy limits did not exist so as i said they crammed and when they calculated the square footage of the building these were loft uh spaces so they calculated height as part of the overall calculation to figure out how much, you know, what kind of safety protocols they needed to follow. So height is not, I mean, really you should be calculating width, right? So how much floor space and, and they, they did not do that. Their fire hoses were not connected to a water source. So what happened then after the fire is everyone saying, Oh, wow. Whose fault is this? Because of exactly what you said, you know, the, were there codes? Uh, there were minimal codes and nobody really, there was no place where the buck stopped. Yeah. Right. Where people could say, all right, here you got to tick these boxes before we can let human beings in here to work. And a rigorous set of enforcement protocols just didn't exist at the time. So, you know, and also I, I just want to add, I think sometimes we tend to romanticize a manufacturing economy. Oh, we're in a service economy. We used to have all these really good jobs. Well, the truth is manufacturing jobs were good jobs because they were union jobs. They were dangerous jobs. They were dirty jobs. They were hard jobs and people regularly died on the job. Um, 
as you know, I, I lost an uncle in the coal mines in northeastern Pennsylvania. That happens all the time. And just, you know, there's a story from Lawrence, Massachusetts, of a young girl who had a piece of her scalp ripped off because she her hair got caught in the machinery. That happens every day. What was different was that people saw what happened in the Triangle factory. And that's why things changed afterwards. Not because, oh my gosh, all these people died, but because all these people died and New Yorkers saw it, including many, many middle and upper class New Yorkers, and they could no longer ignore the situation. You know, I was reading a quote uh, from Stephanie's research. Um, I want to get it here because I think it's important. William Gunn Shepard, a reporter at the site of the tragedy, went on to say, I learned a new sound that day, a sound more horrible than description can picture, the thud of a speeding living body on a stone sidewalk. Um, you know, we we here in New York, not that long ago, coming up on 20 years ago this year, lived through similar impact with September 11th and, and what that meant for people to see people leaping to their death in, a, in an attempt to escape a conflagration like this. And the sense of desperation, you know, doesn't come through as much on the news, uh, especially with sensitivity around covering it. But when you're there, when you're on that site, um, but in some ways it sounds like the fact that, that these victims were leaping literally outside of this building carrying with them, frankly, the, the recognition that reform needed to be enacted very quickly. It's almost like their death is, is part of the um, theater of, of life of the city, right? I mean, it, it literally leaps out into the city. You can't ignore it that way. So tell us a little bit about how this goes on to change labor and safety practices here and, and around the country. You know, what, what is the long-term impact from that perspective? Well, you know, I, I really liked the, the image of, you know, this is part of the theater of the city because it was extraordinarily dramatic and, you know, a, a drama that no one wants to experience ever, right? So what happened is you had people gathering at the site. Um, they saw smoke, they heard shrieks and sirens, and, and they came to see what was going on. And that, that really moving account with, of the sound of Triangle by William Gunn Shepherd, he happened to be on the scene. He was a, a reporter, an AP reporter. And so he phoned in the story as he was watching. Um, and so that then kind of amplified the message because that went out through the press, um, both in the US and then eventually, of course, around the world. And, you know, there are a number of, of onlookers who um, were significant for what happened afterward. And probably the most significant was uh, Frances Perkins. She was a young social worker having tea with a, uh, a friend in Washington Square Park at the time. And when they heard the commotion, they ran out and she was forever changed by what she saw and uh, was quoted at the 50th anniversary of the fire saying the New Deal began on March 25th, 1911 because you know, what she saw convinced her that something had to be done. That is so profound. That is like, such a profound statement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The impact. Wow. Yeah. And it really, I mean, if you read speeches she gave afterward about the fire, you, it kind of never loses its, um, its terrible magnitude for her. And it really does motivate her life's work. And so, you know, after the fire, New York state uh, commissioned a factory investigating uh, committee and they, and per Perkins, was involved in the factory investigating committee. Um, Al Smith was uh, part of the political establishment that helped to, to um, set, lay the groundwork for this committee. Uh, Robert Wagner also, um, and essentially a bunch of investigators went around the state and 
went inside factories all over New York State. And they actually took a longer time than they were originally allocated because what they saw just motivated them to keep going, keep looking kind of behind the scenes, like the backstory of what's happening uh, in these factories. And they made all kinds of recommendations. By the time their work was complete, they they issued a report that made all kinds of recommendations about everything from the length of the workday, child labor, sanitary conditions and workplaces, and of course, fire safety measures. And many of those uh, recommendations were adopted by the New York State Legislature. I mean, people felt really awful. They felt guilty that this was happening and they had no idea. Uh, they felt shocked. They felt angry. Uh, they, they were grieving the loss of, of these women and girls. And so they were really motivated and the legislature accomplished some extraordinary things. So, you know, child labor, regulations came into effect, protective legislation for women workers, fire escapes, fire drills, mandatory occupancy limits, uh, all of those things. In fact, everyone here, I think, is in a space where you can look around and point to something. And I could say to you, that's a legacy of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. One of the most touching moments I have experienced uh, is uh, we have uh, participated, organized, been involved in uh, events uh, to commemorate, remember, discuss the Triangle Fire is when we were uh, at the Italian Cultural Institute, I think it was in 2015, and Marianne and I organized a panel. And it was a panel where we had Cezanne Pred-Bass, who is uh, um, the great niece of two workers, the one who died in the fire and the sister survived. Uh, there was also a student of mine who very meaningfully said how incredible it was for her as a granddaughter of a garment worker to be in that space, mm -hmm. in that official Italian space. Mm -hmm. But at some point, Suzanne pointed out to the fire exit and says to the audience, and many people in the audience really didn't know much about Triangle Fire, says, well, that's thanks to the Triangle Fire. And, you know, it really stayed with me. I always tell my students, that's one of the first thing I tell them when, when we start the class, because most of my students, when they take the Triangle Fire course, maybe a few have, have studied in, um, in, in passing in high school, but most of them, they've not really heard about it. And I think there is something about the Triangle Fire, which is ultimately what, you know, what, you know, has led uh, all of us who are involved in different forms of activism and, and someone like Marianne to dedicate years of her life uh, together with others to the creation of Triangle Fire Memorial is that it still speaks to us. Mm -hmm. And it speaks to us in the way, in a way that is uh, reminiscent of how we spoke to people. Now, someone like Frances Perkins uh, was this very important witness because she really affected changes that were realized. Uh, she was prepared to have that kind of uh, that kind of change. I mean, she was a someone who had you know, politically that's where she stood. But one of the things that is really striking is that if you think that a little bit uh, uh, more than a year earlier, in 1909, there was uh, the uprising of the 20,000 where many of these shirtwaist workers had gone on strike and they had been beaten by the police, they'd been arrested, uh, they had been victimized. Well, the same policemen were now there on the scene. Now, there was a shift in consciousness, in awareness. The Triangle Fire is, is a catalyst uh, on multiple levels. It's a legal catalyst, but it becomes an ethical catalyst. And you know, and what promotes a big social and legal changes, there must be 
the ethical shift, the willingness to really recognize that others have a humanity that is separate from yours. And I think, you know, that happened that day. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, these workers were not just uh, these anonymous individuals uh, in these uh, factories hidden from sight that produced uh, shirtwaist, which also goes to the invisibility of human labor. And so triangle is so full of meaning on so many levels. Uh, Mm -hmm. And even in this conversation that we are having, I'm always struck by the way in which it really awakens something that is so deeply emotional, so raw for anybody who encounters it. Vijay, it's totally true because you and I have been Facebook friends for a while and every year around the anniversary, I end up crying when I see your Facebook feed because of what you do to remember these people who died, especially with the chalk on the sidewalk where you write their names in front of the houses that they lived in for these workers. So they're no longer invisible. So there is a visibility brought to that. How did all of that come about? Because you really have one of the most poignant and beautiful memorials around this event every year. And I like it because based from where I am in Pennsylvania, I can participate virtually and be a part of this. So thank you for that. But chalk again, because I, I really believe, maybe because I'm also my background as a, as a literary scholar and historian, I'm always very careful in just giving credit where credit is due. And chalk is really the creation of Ruth Sergo, who started this wonderful project of uh, matching people with a worker. And then you go to the home address and on the sidewalk you write, the name, you write the age, you write died in the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire and the date. I have done that alone, but for me, the most meaningful experience is to do it uh, with my students. And also, Marianne and I were able to take both my students and their students together. And that was really wonderful. I'm I'm doing an event in a couple of weeks uh, on how the Triangle Fire is remembered uh, 110 years later, but what what it means for for a new generation. Um, I think whenever we're doing memory work, uh, the risk is that we can, it can become kind of stuck uh, in uh, the memory of uh, the older generation that comes to understand its meaning and becomes attached to whatever, however we have learned it experiences. So for me as an educator, the challenge is how do I make it meaningful and important uh, um, to students. And I think we live at the time in which uh, throughout the pandemic, and that's something that Marianne and I have, have discussed at length uh, during the making of this book, uh, that this idea of what it means to be a worker and risking your life is more relevant uh, than ever. So, you know, my students have recognized themselves as really the sisters and the brothers of the triangle workers. So, so when they do the chalking, and last year was really meaningful because very few could do, you know, we didn't go to the home addresses, but if, you know, they, they did drawings and they did them in front of their house that went to parking lot. There is a, this very, very intimate and, and powerful connection. And this year it's being done again. Um, Mariana, I don't know if you want to talk about the way in which the commemoration is going to be done this year. Yeah, well, you know what? I also want to give a shout out, though, because Eddie created the first course on the Triangle Fire, which she's taught several times. And 
I brought my students in the context of labor history classes or social protest classes or, but Eddie's does this extraordinary work. And I first heard about the Triangle Fire. My mom was a garment worker. She worked at the Lee Manufacturing in Pittston, Pennsylvania. Um, my grandmother was also a garment worker. So I have a lot of garment workers in the family. But I remember my mother telling me that we knew that we were safe in our factory because of what had happened to the girls at Triangle. So labor, uh, my mother was a member of the ILGWU, which was the, the union that Triangle workers would have joined if they had succeeded in the uprising in that strike other companies allowed, you know, said, yes, we of course will recognize that you want a union and we will, we will, we will recognize that you should have a union, you know, if you want one. Um, but Triangle didn't, it was, it, it didn't. And, uh, and of course the consequences were deadly because of that, but it really motivated women workers after the fire to organize themselves, to organize one another and to really push for unionization and to demand um, safety regulations. And so my mom, was the beneficiary of that, right? As a member of the ILGWU, she got taught that, you know, this is, the boss didn't give us safe workplaces. We died, our sisters died, and our other sisters fought for these safe workplaces. But with the decline in unionization in the US and the absolute, I mean, I'm working on another project and we have a whole, uh, uh, we've done a whole ton of research on, on the state of labor education in the US and it's awful. We don't tell the stories of working people as working people in educational settings. So with a decline in unionization and the abysmal state of labor education, work that people like Eddie are doing to bring this story to new generations to really make it vivid and her students have done extraordinary work is really essential because there just aren't a lot of spaces and and we're so grateful for this space i mean that's one of the things we hope that our own that our book will do too is to to you know enter into and create a space where we can tell the story um, because there just aren't a lot of spaces out there where we can and where we do do that um, and so her work is really really important and really powerful you got to a topic that I really wanted to talk about, which was sort of the decline in union participation in this country. And like you say earlier, you know, we really have moved to a service-based economy. So I think in so many ways, the idea of unionization, the idea of manufacturing is just so far outside of our popular consciousness. You know, it's just not a, a, as significant of a population as there used to be. I mean, I come from a grandfather who was in the Teamsters Union, you know, Italian Americans have had an incredible impact in the history of labor unionization, mm -hmm. everything from obviously, you know, the Triangle Factory Fire, which was a population of primarily Italian and Jewish young women, uh, recent immigrants, Lawrence, Massachusetts, and uh, all of the accomplishments there in terms of the unions, and even into the, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, when finally union leadership fell to so many Italian Americans. What is the legacy of Italian Americans around organized labor? It, it's easy to sort of see it in the surnames, but really, what does the organization of labor mean to our community and our immigrant experience? And what do we mean to that movement? A lot. <laughs> so I've spoken at countless Italian American organizations about the fire. And I, I told you at the beginning that, you know, some people say, I didn't realize, I thought this was a Jewish story. But then a lot of people start tapping into their family memories. And I get people raising their hands or, or coming up and hugging me afterwards and saying, my mom was a garment worker. She was a member of the ILGWU, my grandmother, my aunts, my, so, you know, Italians played a really important role in 
garment unions in the US, uh, it, it was rough going at first. They weren't accepted into the unions. And when they were, uh, the meetings were held in a language that they didn't understand in New York and the ILGWU. Uh, the way it worked was when you come together to form a local, you vote on what the language should be. And so it was typically more because just because of different historical experiences, different relationships to the very idea of a labor union, often these meetings would have more Jews than Italians and they would vote to have the meetings in Yiddish. And there's actually records of the ILGWU up in Cornell and, and you have the Italians saying, well, well, can't we just do English? <laughs> and, and it's like, oh no, we're gonna vote on it, right? And so what they had to do then was they had to secure the numbers to be able to say, finally, with, with uh, they had their own uh, language local, Local 89, um, to say, all right, we got enough people to start our own local and we vote to have the meetings in Italian, right? So, wow. so there, was, there was some mistrust on the part of Italians when they first came to the US that they brought with them, you know, through the experience of migration. There was some resentment because of things like, you know, is the American Federation of Labor gonna let, they're even gonna let us in because they were not friendly to immigrants. Um, you talked about Lawrence, that union was the industrial workers of the world, the more radical alternative. They embraced, you want, you work, you can join. And Italians played a very prominent role in the Warren strike and in that union. But eventually they really carved a space for themselves in the ILGWU as well. Um, Angela Bambaci uh, was a really important woman in a, in a leadership position in the union, Luigi Antonini, uh, a bunch of other people whose names we don't know. Um, so, and certainly in, in the United Mine Workers, I mean, all of the major industries of the manufacturing economy had significant numbers of Italians. And I think once they were able to chip away at both their own mistrust um, or lack of trust, I don't, I mean, it's, it, they had good reasons in some cases for not trusting in these institutions um, and the institution's own resistance to organizing them, then I think they really, um, they played a big role. And I, it's really fun to hear, you know, to see these older people recount their own or their you know, aunts, uncles, parents, um, relationships to the union quite fondly. I mean, we have a, a reputation for being conservative and, you know, hostile to, to collective action. And I have seen people just so moved by the story and so proud of their family's union uh, background that it's been really heartwarming. And it comes down to the work that Eddie and, and I and others are doing. It's just, it's all about education. This isn't something, unions aren't something that other people um, have in their history. This is our history. Um, and we've really, we, we, I'm so happy that, that we're claiming it. There are so many acts of reclamation in triangle history. They're both individual and collective from people who discover either they had a relative who died in the fire or worked at triangle, or sometimes it can be, you know, my student, former student, Cassandra Casella, who's the daughter of, uh, a garment worker, or the student Rita Abdullah, who's a dancer who is uh, choreographing a dance inspired by the Triangle Fire, because that also speaks to her experience of as, as a refugee. But there is something else that Triangle Fire has done, which I think is extremely important, because it goes to the core of the relationship between Italy and Italian America. Italy has had such a problematic relationship uh, with, uh, with the, her immigrant children. I have to say her, I can't say it. Uh, Italy is Italia. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, um, you know, I, I grew up, I was born and grew up uh, in Italy. And 
and the feelings towards uh, immigrants and returning immigrants were not warm feelings. They were like almost undesired guests. So there was a sense of also of, uh, uh, I mean, really a sense of a stronger classes. Of course, then I became an immigrant myself, although you know, a privileged one because I came here as a student. But the Triangle Fire entered the Italian consciousness. I'm, so, I'm so glad you told your story, Stephanie. It, the Triangle Fire entered the Italian history and consciousness so without being named in the 1970s through the feminist movement and the, this kind of vague awareness of a fire at the beginning of the 20th century where women have died. And there is a song by the Movimento Feminista Romano, 1976 songs that, say, that says, you know, we died in a factory, siamo morte in una fabbrica. But no one knew that the workers uh, were Italian. In fact, most of the work, Italian workers who died were Sicilian. Why do you think there is that hostility why there is, oh, you know, I mean, you could, you, could, you, could go, you could go historical, you could go sociological, you could go psychological. I mean, we have to remember that Italy was until World War II still a monarchy. There is a very strong sense of class stratification. There are still people who are very much aware of- oh, I agree. No, not, nobody agrees with you more than I do. Yeah, so- It comes so out that, of Italy's pores, but do you think that's the basis? Well, I think I think there are multiple bases. I mean, if you if you want to do a socio psychological analysis, I mean, if Italy is the maternal, these are the, the the children Italy could not take care of. So there has never been like the sense of uh, wow. of, uh, of recognition of that. That is, that is yeah. That may I be that. that may be one of the best things I've ever heard on this show. Yeah, that that explains so much. I I, I don't think it's it's my the opinion is unique to me, but for me that is very powerful. And also a large part of the immigrants came from the South, which has had its own problematic uh, position within uh, the Italian nation. So if the South experienced a sense of inferiority within Italy, then uh, mm. wh what about the Southern Italian immigrants who leave the country? So they're just, there are, and also in the same way that in American in US history, in the, in the various migrations that have occurred in the neighborhood, uh, the most recently arrived immigrant group is the lowest. Well, that's, you, you have the same hierarchical, hierarchical distinction. Thankfully, there's been a, a growing sense of recovery recognition, but I just wanna point out what the Triangle Fire has done. And I think it has done uh, not so much through the direct uh, recognition and embracing of the plight of immigrants, but through feminism. Feminism was really the first movement in Italy that recognized and embraced the Triangle Fire without knowing that the workers were women. And then over the past several years, this organization, Toponomastica Femminile, with uh, this um, writer and activist who's actually one of our contributors, Esther Rizzo, has organized this um, large initiative where really, I mean, they, you know, they, they came before the United States in this because uh, all the towns for which the, the origins of the Italian workers have been identified as some, uh, some recognition, some public space that is a commemorative space has been created in the memory of a triangle worker that was born there. Now think about that. Think about having uh, a plaque to Clotilde Terranova and also a path in the public gardens. Uh, think of being a factory worker and you have a street title. That, particularly in the context of 
Italy's relationship to class and to immigrants is, is really radical. So the tri that, that's, that's another gift of the Triangle Fire. Now Italy has been really embracing the Triangle Fire. And uh, I, I wish you could listen to this amazing song by uh, Sicilian singer Francesca Incudine, no name. Uh, she's written this song that is in Italian and in Sicilian. And one of the lines that Marianne and I absolutely love is, we are dark fallen comets. Mm. And what's coming out of Italy and Sicily, especially is a voice and a way to tell the triangle story that has been missing. And I think that particular approach telling the story of the triangle can be very healing and very important for the Italian American community. They still, uh, striving to find uh, the place of the triangle fire within uh, within our larger historical and ethical and cultural and psychological consciousness wow that is absolutely brilliant in that perspective and to, to find out to understand that the home towns the the towns of origin of these women have taken the time to commemorate the lives of their immigrant children sent out here in the, and to die in this tragedy, uh, something I never knew. And it brings us to an interesting point as well, because as we referenced, Marianne, you've been really the champion behind this memorial that is, as I say, 110 years uh, in the making. Mm. And it's really interesting in, in perspective too, because, you know, last year I remember the Order of Sons of Italy and the Italian Sons and Daughters of America and organizations in New Orleans were able to work to have an official apology for the 1891 lynchings in New Orleans from the mayor. And now they're working on a memorial, again, hundreds of 100 plus years later. Um, first of all, tell us about the memorial that is coming and perhaps why it's taken us this long to have one here in New York City. Well, the memorial is the creation of a two-person design team from Queens. We held an international design competition um, in 2012 and received entries from over 30 countries, uh, 170 entries. Wow. And we held this competition because when, remember, the Triangle Fire Coalition was founded, it was founded with two major goals in mind, to bring people together to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the fire in a meaningful way, in a tasteful, but in a big way, right? This is something that was really important and it deserves to be commemorated. And in fact, that was the case, right? There were thousands of people who came to New York and the coalition really helped connect people all over the country and all over the world who wanted to do things to remember the fire. And once that was over, um, you know, the, the second, the, the other aim that, that on days that aren't March 25th, days when you know people aren't chalking the names or aren't standing in front of the building uh, laying down flowers it's 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 virtually invisible on the landscape of new york so let's change that so that every day people who who are in greenwich village have the opportunity and the motivation to go see the site where it happened um, and to to un to learn and to be inspired to take action the way people did after what happened in 1911 so we worked closely with the vietnam vet uh, the Vietnam Memorial, uh, the person who led that project, and he basically told us how to do it. You know, you assemble a stellar jury, people who have the chops, the background, the understanding to select a design that speaks eloquently to the things that you want it to speak to. Um, 
we had done some previous meetings around the time of the centennial to say to people, hey, if there is a memorial here, which we, we intend for there to be, what, what do you think it should be? So to really do this from the ground up, and we held all kinds of meetings, and what they had told us was they wanted it at, at the site on the building, they wanted the names on it, and they wanted something simple but powerful that tells the story. Um, and so we took that into the competition. We worked with New York University. We signed an historic agreement. Uh, people had tried before to get this done and NYU always said no. And I think with the success of the coalition for the centennial and just our determination, they finally said yes. So they said, you could put it on our building. We worked very closely with them. We hired an incredibly talented um, director for the competition, Ernesto Martinez. He had just moved up. He was trained as an architect and just moved up from Austin, Texas. He oversaw the competition as an architect. He understood you know, who to reach out to, how to explain what we wanted, how to work with the different parties. And we had everyone from you know, Richard Greenwald, a historian who wrote a book about the fire, to Yamakaran from the um, architectural firm, Daniel Liebeskind, uh, architectural firm, Daniel Liebeskind designed the Holocaust Memorial in Berlin. We had Deborah Burke, who was the chair of the committee, who is now the dean of the School of Architecture at Yale, Yoli Tang, who is a designer. We had incredible people. And um, the coalition was not directly involved in selecting the design because we left that to the experts. They selected a beautiful design, Richard Junyu and Uri Wegman. It's called Reframing the Sky. And it's essentially a metal ribbon that at 12 feet high, um, you know, is on the sides of the Brown building. It meets at the corner of Washington and Green, and then it, it goes straight up to the ninth floor to call people's attention to where the fire happened. Um, and then at waist height, we have used a material or we are using a material called stone glass which is essentially glass that has uh elements of stone and 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 rock in it and it is made only in parma so appropriately it comes from italy and so what the 12 foot high horizontal panels do is they have the names and the ages of the people who died stenciled into them so the light reflects through and it reflects off of the stone glass at waist height Wow. So it's it's both a stone glass reflective panel that that also has the story and eyewitness accounts carved into it, but then reflects the names from above and reflects actually the person who's visiting the memorial, their own face um, as they move in closer to read and to follow. So you have to kind of walk down Washington Place, then up green. Uh, you have to your whole body gets involved and you look down at the names and you look up to see where they came from. You look up to see that metal ribbon that stretches up to the ninth floor. And in so doing, you are positioned the way people who witnessed the fire were positioned in 1911, looking up, looking down. Wow. And finally, perhaps the most one of the most extraordinary things about this memorial was the ribbon is cast of steel, but the designers had this brilliant idea that, you know, we're going to use burlap to give texture to it so it looks like a ribbon. It's really unremarkable fabric. Let's let's use a remarkable fabric to give texture to this. Let's make it a collective ribbon. Let's invite people from all over New York, all over the U.S. and all over the world to submit a piece of cloth that is important to them, that connects them to this story and invite them also to tell us why. Right, so a piece of fabric, a material object, and a narrative, and we will archive the narratives, and we will sew the pieces of fabric together, and we will create a ribbon, and we will use the texture of that fabric, and that will give us the texture for this metal ribbon. So you had people. I submitted a, a you know, my mom was a garment worker, and my dad, when he was overseas, uh, bought my mom. He was served in the Korean War. He was stationed in Europe, and he bought my mom this beautiful. Um, handkerchief that he had engraved to her, um, you know, stitched with her name and, and a heart. And, and so I put that in the fabric. Um, 
and other people put, you know, union patches, or this was the wedding dress that my great aunt was gonna wear, but she was killed in the fire. Or, you know, this is a lock of hair from my grandmother who was uh, a garment worker encased in a piece of fabric. And so we have all these pieces of fabric and all these stories. And the beautiful thing is decades from now, you know, someone like Ed Vijay will walk past the, the building with her grandchildren or, or great-grandchildren and say, see this memorial? If you look up there, something of ours is in that memorial. So we, we quite literally made the memorial in community sewing the way women used to sew in these garment factories, but in much more pleasant circumstances. And so it's just this incredibly innovative participatory grassroots project that we have been blessed to have the support of the state of New York. Um, I know Andrew Cuomo's in a bit of hot water now, but I have to give him props. He saw the value of this. He has funded almost all, he funded what was the entirety of the capital budget. Um, we have since had some additional costs because of just the way the building is made, but we've raised money from labor unions and private individuals. Um, we brought the project to the community board um, and they voted on it. And and it was a near unanimous decision. They fell in love with the design after some initial you know, kind of rocky conversations. What is this gonna look like? What's it gonna do? Who's it gonna bring? Once we explained it to them and, and had you know, this, this open meeting, um, they really saw, you know, like Eddie said, I mean, people really, it speaks to them, right? They were just so enthusiastic. And then the Landmarks Preservation Commission, because the building is landmarked and it does have a plaque on it, but people don't notice the plaques because they're too similar to the architectural style, uh, the neo-Renaissance style of the building, which this memorial, as you can imagine, is not. That was the question I wanted to ask. Was the fact that your inspiration for, a I mean, of course, a monument is the place so needs to be recognized. Right. But do you feel that the plaques that had gone up previously just didn't do it, cut it? Is that is that the inspiration behind the current monument? Yeah, they're very well intentioned. And the wording on the plaque that the ILGWU had installed for the 50th anniversary is very moving. But because the building's neo-Renaissance and these are just brass, I don't know if they actually are brass, but you know, that that kind of- Yeah, the old bronze plaque, sure. Bronze, sure. that's it, I couldn't, I said brass, yes. So they're just, there is a, a, a an ILGWU plaque, there's a Landmarks Preservation Commission plaque, and there's a National Register of Historic Places plaque on there. And they don't, they don't cut it. I have. No, I'm not, not a word of what I'm about to tell you is an exaggeration. I have been standing on the corner of Washington and Green in front of the Brown building. And I have seen individuals and families walking around, looking around, they come and stand next to me in front of the building and say, I can't find the Brown building. Can you help me find it? So the plaques are completely invisible. And what we want is for this to be impossible to ignore in a very, in a very tasteful, very powerful, very poignant, very simple uh, style. And when we brought the design to landmarks, so the, the important thing to know is that this building is a, is a New York City landmark, but it's not an architectural landmark, which most New York City landmarks are that are recognized by LPC. It's a cultural landmark. It's the second cultural landmark in New York City. Stonewall is the first. We brought this uh, project in. We had a meeting. I stood up at the podium to introduce it. And I'm I can speak in front of a million people without speaker anxiety. And my whole body shook with the weight of the historic event that was about to unfold, this discussion about whether Landmark should approve this, because if they didn't approve it, it wouldn't happen. And I thought, Lord, please, like, give me the eloquence to speak the words uh, to get this started that will give us a, a positive vote. And by the time Richard and Uri explained their project and the people who had come to testify testified, 
the landmarks people were so moved they said to us you have changed the way we look at landmarks in New York we thought that architectural structures spoke for themselves and you have taught us that they don't wow. and that cultural landmarks in particular need help to spread their message to the city and this is a terrific project and we we support it a hundred percent and so now we're going forward COVID set us back a little bit but our state funding uh we hope will be soon released um, from the dormitory authority of the state of New York, which is the entity that's, um, that the money will be channeled through. And our target dedication is May of 2022. Well, let me tell you, I would very much look forward to being there for that. The obvious passion that you two bring to this is infectious. And I'm really thrilled that it's come to fruition after, you know, decades of work and, and love and labor, uh, you know, I th I'm thinking the whole time we're talking in the context of conversations we've had, that are way tangential, as we wrap the show in particular, around, you know, Columbus monuments and their role in the Italian American community. And so many uh, speakers have talked about the idea that in the 1890s, Columbus was a figure that Italian Americans sort of could use as a spearhead into the mainstream, you know, it didn't necessarily speak to their real experience as immigrants, but it was this sort of acceptable figure. And, and to see now, 110 years later, a memorial like this and 130 years later, one like New Orleans, you know, or looking at the statue to the immigrant in New Orleans that went up in the 70s and 80s and, and the statue of the immigrant in the hill in St. Louis, you know, it's, it's wonderful to see a sophisticated, nuanced and organic telling of our story through memorial more than a century after some of these events where it feels like we as a community are able to finally dig into our own indigenous story here you know and it, it doesn't have to be symbolic representation that's acceptable to the mainstream and it doesn't have to be localized and inward looking but it's something that can be outward looking that talks to our role in the history of this country our role in the history of so many important movements like labor and feminism and uh, immigration I, i'm just very proud to see these things go up because i think it speaks to a maturity of our experience here as a community and i'm happy to see the community and the young people in particular that you guys bring to this because it really does make for more meaningful connectivity to our true immigrant and social experience here as Italian Americans. So from all of us at the podcast, thank you so much for this work. Thank you for coming on. Uh, before we go, would, you, would one of you guys just tell us where our audience can find you and your efforts and, and how can they participate? Well, thank you first of all for having us. This was such a wonderful opportunity to talk about something that is so dear and so important to, to our lives. Uh, but I want to acknowledge uh, our publisher, New Village Press, uh, that is publishing our book, uh, Talking to the Girls, Intimate and Political Essays uh, about the Triangle Fire, which actually speaks exactly to what you describe the stories. You know, we ask the people, what is your Triangle Fire story? And I think even in, during this conversation today, each of us could tell their own triangle story. And it really speaks to the importance of the intimate relationship that we must establish with the past and how we make it meaningful in our own lives, but also in the lives of the people that we teach, we work with, our children, our grandchildren, our friends, and the power that we have to really affect the change on multiple levels. Each of us has a, has a part to play. I teach at New Jersey City University. I teach a course on the Triangle Fire on March 25th at 11.30 at the NGSU Center for the Arts. Uh, 
um, will host an event on how um, the new generation remembers the Triangle Fire 110 years later. Um, several young people, um, some former students of mine and a former student of one of our wonderful contributors, Kimberly Schiller, who teaches at the Triangle Fire in middle school, will be talking about their experiences. And um, I can found uh, um, through the website of New Jersey City University. Well, we will certainly be linking on our show page for our audience, you know, no matter where you listen to the podcast, if you visit our website in our episode archives on the show page, we will have links to all of the wonderful work that these women have done and uh, these events coming up to commemorate the 110th anniversary of what I think, particularly after this conversation, is clearly a transformative moment for our community, for our country, and for the world. So, Guys, thank you so much for coming on. This has been great. You're welcome back anytime. Uh, we had about a half an hour conversation off mic about uh, the history of Sicily and uh, our <laughs> northeastern Pennsylvania. The place they've ever been to Italy. But yes, how New Jersey. Yes, that's true. And Vijay said. And I didn't provoke that. She <laughs> did not. <laughs> she said New Jersey's the closest she ever felt to Sicily. Pat was on cloud nine. Uh, so you anytime for different topics, we'd love to have you back. I just want to do a shout out too. Um, thanks, Eddie, for mentioning the publisher because they, in my mind, our book is kind of a memorial. Um, we really deepen and broaden the stories about Triangle. Um, it's a, an incredible array of really wonderful uh, storytellers who've come together from, from such a diverse uh, range of perspectives and, and life histories. Um, and on March 25th at 6 p.m., the official annual commemoration will be happening this year online. Uh, for more information, please go to www.rememberthetrianglefire.org. Every worker who died in the factory fire will be remembered, uh, not with a flower, uh, but in a, in a, in a different um, and very equally powerful way, I think. Um, and I hope that you and the listeners will join us uh, for this very moving event. I uh, certainly look forward to it. It's uh... It's, it's wonderful. I think our audience is going to be really moved by the story and the work you guys have done. So uh, we, we much appreciate it. And we hope everybody out there uh, follows these links, gets to visit, and uh, God willing, when this memorial is open, we'll all be able to unite uh, at this very important corner in New York, uh, Italian-American and American history. So uh, this has been a great one. From all of us, the Italian-American podcast, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. To bring out your amore, you get chicken cacciatore. When your mama's a paisano, you have got the world on a plate. So see that you're born an Italiano, and your life will be great. See that you're born an Italian, if you want your life to be great. See that you're born an Italiano and your life will be great. See that you're born an Italiano.